Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Fiction. Science fiction. Horror. Fantasy, crime, LGBT, thriller. You have now entered the House of Mystery. With your hosts, Eric Shapiro, David North Martino, John Copenhaver, and our word. Heard on 106.5 FM Los Angeles. 102.3 FM Riverside. And 105.0 AM Palm Springs. Welcome back into the House of Mystery, and I'm Al Warren. On the other side of the country, we've got Mr. David Northeastern Martino. <laughs> yeah, that's it. <laughs> Still digging his way out of the snow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Surviving the blizzard. Yeah. Well, <laughs> it probably makes no difference to someone like you, right? No. I mean, because you're just <laughs> hanging out in your basement with your cat. Yeah, and exactly. Not much goes on. As long as they matter. can do the delivery of food, you're fine. <laughs> That's right. You know. <laughs> Send me pizza. Yeah. And you just got to order it a little bit early so that you get it on time. That's know? right. That's right. You know, you know, let them deal with all that stuff. And you probably yeah. don't even tip them, do you? <laughs> of course I tip. What yeah, I can imagine, you know. <laughs> I'm you a know. good tipper. Yeah, I could, I, I could see. Um, <laughs> so, so again, and, and everything's going good. And, of course, we uh, removed ourselves from Spotify. Actually, I put us on <laughs> Spotify just so that we could remove ourselves just to make a statement for <laughs> Mr. Neil Young, and, and hopefully that helps. You know, <laughs> I don't know. I'm I'm cheeky. Anyway, you are. I am. So now uh, we continue our week of authors at la- the last night show with uh, Dean Koontz. I think went really well. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, sounds like it. So no complaints yet. Lots of emails, but I I, I won't look until maybe <laughs> a little bit later. Um, the mean and, emails. Yeah, the mean. Oh, hopefully it was. I think it went well. So I don't. know. Oh, oh yeah. You know. He liked it. His agent, his press person liked it. So that's all that matters, you know. 
That's right. Um, but so now we've got someone from the UK. Maybe not. We've got, we got someone <laughs> with the UK <laughs> accent. So I'm, you'll know when I'm speaking. We've got a uh, French author here. And, and her new book is called <laughs> The Narrow Door. And this is Joanne Harris. Well, thank you for being on the show. Oh, thank you for having me. You see, so so listeners, so that's that's French, just so you know. Ben, je suis ravie d'être invitée. Merci, messieurs, de votre gentille attention. That was good. You've been writing for a while. I I look at your um your page here, and it looks like you you've been doing this for a little while now. Have you always been a writer, or is this something that started when you were a kid? I think it was, yes. Uh, I always wanted to write. It took me a long time to understand that I could do it for a living. Um, I come from a family of teachers, and I think it was understood from quite early on that I was going to be a teacher and that there was no great option over that. So I remember having a little epiphany when I was about eight or nine and going to my mother and saying, you know what, you know how everybody says that I should be a teacher when I grow up? Well, actually, I think I want to write books and there was, my mother is a rather frightening, authoritative French woman, and there was a, a rather frightening French silence, and then she just silently took us into a room in our house, which was just piled high with books, all by 19th century French novelists who all died penniless in the gutter of syphilis. And she said, this is why you need a proper job. And so I became a teacher. And, but I did write in stealth. Um, and, and sometimes I remind myself that I'm actually a real writer now and, and not just a teacher on a very, very long sabbatical. <laughs> wow. Oh, there we go. And that's quite an experience to start out with. Um, but there is, okay, so you're a teacher and, and working in the profession. What gave you the courage to decide, well, you know what, I'm going to publish books i'm going to send it in and get people to publish it and and i believe in myself enough because that's quite a i think it's quite courageous to take that step well i didn't think of it as being a courageous step because it wasn't just one step it was lots of little steps and so i fooled myself that i wasn't doing very much first of all i i wrote something and then I typed it out. And then I thought, you know, what if I send it to some publishers? And of course, that didn't work. And, and so I thought, well, what if I get an agent? And I tried that for a while. And eventually I got one until I'd kind of talked myself into some kind of, some kind of plan. And when eventually my first book was, was published and it sank without trace, I thought, you know, my mother was probably right. And it was a jolly good thing that I didn't give up my day job. And that, that went on for another 15 years until finally I started to, to perceive the possibility of making money from, from the books I was writing. But no, it took me a long, long time to be an overnight success. <laughs> well, do you feel teaching made you um, a better writer or did uh, you need to unlearn certain tendencies that um, y you developed in academia? Well, no, I think it did make me a better writer. I think because my parents were teachers, and my grandfather was a teacher, and all their friends were teachers. I was surrounded by stories of teaching from the cradle. And it seemed to me when I was very young that teaching was a sort of factory of stories. And indeed it is, because it's the sort of job where you get to, to see the same people day in, day out. Schools are just made of drama. They're made of <laughs> communities. They are, they are communities constantly under pressure, subject to, to change and 
And it was fascinating. And so I found myself, when I was writing, borrowing elements from these communities that I inhabited. And then particularly from, from one, one particular school that I taught in for a long time, which was a, a boys' school in Yorkshire called Leeds Grammar School. And it was, it was, a, it was an astonishing place. It was an old school. Um, it, it had been founded in 1566, and some of the staff, I'm sure, were the original members of staff. It was a school full of old men and boys. And I arrived there aged 24, one of three women on the whole staff. And it was, it was like being transported to Gormenghast. It took me a while to acclimatize, but I thought, you know, this place is, is fascinating. It's full of stories. And so I, I collected stories, not, not consciously, but um, when I wrote, when I wrote the, the, the book that allowed me to give up teaching, which was Chocola, I realized some time afterwards that I'd just been using Leeds Grammar School as my kind of story testing ground from the start. Wow. Um, when you did Chocolate um, and it got adapted and it became like a, a, a big movie, you know, Johnny Depp and uh, Juliet Binoche, how, how does that work for you following up writing when you write after something like that? Um, does that put kind of a pressure on you or do you feel intimidated, <laughs> intimidated by, by it? Well, I think the the weight of expectation after something like that is so huge that you either get crushed by it or you ignore it completely, which is what I did. I just ignored it. Um, I mean, the advantage for me is that I don't live in London. I live in Yorkshire, and it's it feels like a long way away from publishing and where things are happening in publishing. And that, that I think, kept me grounded, and it allowed me to just keep on with what I love doing. The, the movie was was a sort of farcical, slightly frightening adventure, but it wasn't really much to do with me. I just watched it from a distance out of the body, if you like, and just went on doing all the things I'd been doing before, except this time I was I was writing full time or trying to, rather than writing in my spare time and teaching. Wow. Yeah, I would imagine that would have some sort of an effect, but maybe maybe you're right if you're kind of away from it and not not really focusing on it. Um you can keep keep moving, but um, well, do, does does people and reviews and when they say things about your writing, when a book and a movie um, comes out like that, um, there's a lot of you know how do we say um, critics and stuff. It, it, did that sort of affect you as well, or did you ignore that totally? Well, I found it quite difficult to acclimatize because my first two books had come out to a kind of resounding critical silence. And then Chocolat all of a sudden was everywhere and people were talking about it and it was number one and then it was a movie and then it, it was up for some Oscars and some BAFTAs. And every time I thought, okay, I have acclimatized, I know where I am now, some other whammy would come and hit me in the head and I would have to acclimatize all over again. And so for a year, it was a bit of a roller coaster ride. And there were, there were nice things about it, but one of the things I did find quite uncomfortable was the the scrutiny and the assumptions made about me and the stories that were made up about me. There was that the media liked to make up stories. And so they made up a story of, you know, this simple village school teacher who somehow accidentally wrote a book. Um, and, and so I got a lot of Cinderella comparisons, but uh, they weren't, they weren't very accurate. 
No, and it was no. amusing, but it was also a bit startling. I, I you know, I'm, I'm happy standing in front of a classroom of kids talking about Flaubert, but um, I was much less happy talking about myself to people, and I seem to be doing that so much. <laughs> well, it's kind of it's kind of the world of publishing, you know, especially it sort lately. Of is, yeah. yeah, especially <laughs> lately, you know. Well, so so you've continued on, and now you've got a new book out called um, A Narrow Door, or fairly new, I guess, August of twenty one. Here, um, let's let's talk about A Narrow Door. Um, where does the um, idea for this book come from? Well, um, it's it's part of a, a a series of books that are loosely interconnected. That they're set in a, a boys' grammar school in the north of England, which is not unlike the Leeds Grammar School of old. Um, I did say when uh, when I, I started to to write professionally that I wouldn't write about teaching, and for a long time I didn't want to. I think teaching was was something that was still so close and so raw, and also some of my colleagues were still alive, um, and and so I think I was waiting for, for, for some of them to die, or at least for everything to be further away. Um, but I think that inevitably I was going to write about teaching, partly because it was such a big part of my life, but also because I really loved that environment and those communities. And so um, I think, you know, the first of those books, which was called Gentlemen and Players, was a kind of homeopathic dose of teaching to remind me why I left. And it's set in, a, like all these books, in, in an imaginary grammar school called St. Oswald's. And the hero is a Latin master called Roy Straitley, who is perpetually on the brink of retirement, but who can't retire. The first two books have various um, dramas and scandals involved, and, and Straitley always manages to ride these out. Um, the, the third book in the series, A Narrow Door, is, is the biggest challenge of, of poor old Straitley's life because um, being one of the old school and being very much the enemy of innovation and suits and chalkboards being made into whiteboards and emails and, and all these things that he sees as the, the beginning of the end of the fine grammar school, um, he's now faced with the school having a woman head who has actually decided to make the school co-ed. And this woman is somebody he's met before. Her name is Rebecca Buckfast. She arrived the previous year as part of the, the crisis team that was supposed to drag this, this failing grammar school out of, uh, out of bankruptcy. And she has stayed as the headmistress, and she is extremely ruthless. Um, he respects her, but he doesn't like the fact that she's there. She tolerates him, but doesn't like the fact that he is there. Um, and they're all set for a fairly fraught term when a group of Straitley's boys uh, in his form find a body or what they think is a body on the site of one of the fine new buildings that the new headmistress is planning on having built. And, um, and so, of course, he rightly goes to see the head, um, expecting her to report this to the police. Um, Buckfast doesn't want to. Uh, it seems that actually she knows rather more about this body than he would have expected. And there is a backstory which emerges little by little um, in a kind of Scheherazade manner. And so we learn about, about her childhood and the disappearance of her brother when he was 14, which is the event which has um, basically formed her and made her who she is. And so it's very much about the old guard meeting the new guard and 
um, women yeah. in education, which which is a you know something quite close to my heart. Yeah, who is Rebecca? You know, Buckfest for you. Like, how do you relate to her? How much of you is in her? Oh well, I hope not too much because she's terrible. She's she's a monster. <laughs> She is not the heroine of this book, although I do quite like her in many ways because I understand some, at least, of what she's gone through. I think in these books, I've really enjoyed writing villains that that could be at least partially understood. And with her, um, you know, she's a strong woman. She has become the headmistress of uh, a grammar school that has never had girls in 500 years that has never had a headmistress, um, so she's, she's a pioneer in some respects, and she has done a number of quite bad things to get to where she is, and she has no desire to let that go or to allow anybody to topple her. She has a legacy that she wants to put into place, but she is also a tremendously damaged individual. She's, uh, she's somebody who suffered enormously in her childhood, whose, whose brother disappeared in mysterious circumstances from school when he was a teenager, and she was there. But she doesn't remember anything about it because a traumatic event happened, but she wasn't able to articulate to the police exactly what had happened. And this is, this is part of her secret, which needs to be unwrapped because this is, this is what made her who she is. She, she, she has become in some ways a ruthless monster, but is carrying this, this, this space inside her, which, which needs to be filled. Well, I'm wondering with with Rebecca or any of your uh, characters when you're writing them, um, do you have an inner monologue? Can you hear your characters as you're writing them? Is is that how that works for you? I think it often is, yes, um, because I usually write in the first person, and this this book is written as a dialogue between these two main characters, both of them writing in the first person. It allows me to to get into the head of that person, to but also to to be quite unreliable because. By definition, all narrators are unreliable, and, and Buckfast is particularly so, partly because she doesn't, she isn't entirely aware of the truth of what has happened. Um, and so it, it, it gives me the opportunity to get characters to speak to themselves, to each other, but also to look directly at the reader and to speak to them, because it's clear when you read her narrative that some of what she is saying is going to straightly, but some of it is going straight to you, the reader. And so you know more than either of these two I characters see. really know. And that's a lot of fun to do as a writer. It allows me to, to, to take a number of camera angles, if you like, and to kind of play with the editing. How do you, how do you develop such a complex character or personality uh, in both your main characters here. How, do, how does that work for you? Well, I think I usually start off by assuming that this has to be a real person. I, I, have, to, I have to believe in them. They, they're not a character, really. They're, they're people. And I have to get to, know, to get to know them in the way that I do people. And so I need to know about their past and what they care about and what they want and what they would order from menus, and, and the things that have formed their, their personality. And when I've got a sort of general idea of that, if I'm lucky, the character sits up and starts to speak, and I can get their voice, and that way, that way it's, it's much easier to work out exactly what they would do in, in different circumstances. And of course, given that this is the story, at least partly, of 
a woman in a boys grammar school in the in the 80s i drew upon some of my own experiences and i'm not saying that i'm at all like rebecca buckfast in many ways but i did give her a number of anecdotes that happened to me um and and which my ex boys who follow me on twitter and on social media have of course recognized well i i wonder if maybe some of the characteristics of this character um were things that you it's a way of you acting out what you might have done oh some of it is absolutely some of it is is um is looking to see what what would have happened if you know if i had arrived at leeds grammar school and i hadn't just been uh, a little innocent who who had nothing to to hide but if if i'd actually been an out and out psychopath what would i have done if i'd had no no fear of consequence um but also i think it's it was it was quite fun to revisit that time and to to rebuild some of those memories and and to to work through them via the intermediary of another character with with a different agenda and a different personality would you would you say you have a relationship with the characters then like i i say this because a lot of fiction writers we we talk to um will say that their characters are like their family or like their children they have some sort of a, a description like that do you do you kind of feel the same well i definitely feel that i have a relationship with them i'm not sure if they're my family but I certainly feel that I know them and that I have a relationship with them in that I am contributing to their development but they're also somehow in some way contributing to mine in some way going into the psychology of one of these particularly one some of these dark and challenging complicated characters is is a way of 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 looking at at some of the things about me and working through those mm-hmm. Well, I'm wondering, in the course of, of writing your books, have, have you ever had a character that's done anything to surprise you, kind of gone off the rails or, or done something that uh, you weren't expecting? <laughs> oh, oh, characters surprise me all the time. And they go off the rails all the time, too. I think the, the disadvantage of characters that come to life is that as soon as they've done that, you can't actually stop them from doing what they want to do. Hmm. But usually I've learned that following them, and listening to what they want and feeling what's intuitively right for their development is 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 much more rewarding than trying to get them to to run down the maze the right way because mm. as soon as a character starts to serve a plot too much and too conveniently then they will lie down and not be not be alive anymore so yes it can be quite difficult sometimes it can be like juggling kittens try to try to keep <laughs> characters within the framework of a plot in in as much as you, you don't want to be surprised too much but yes i'm always getting surprises and i think it's a good thing i mean um obviously when you're writing a book um it's quite nice if the reader is going to be surprised but if you are surprised as the author then it's almost certain that the reader will be surprised as well why um bring in a murder so to speak or a body um do you have like a um an a real interest in in murder mysteries and that sort of genre i've always loved murder mysteries um i've always loved psychological thrillers um the three books that i've set at st oswald's are all murder mysteries in a sense that they're all psychological thrillers they're not procedurals in that way but they are all about 
the secrets that people have and how the past impacts on the present. And I've always been very, very interested in that kind of story. Even the, the books that I've written that don't seem to be mysteries, they, they still are full of characters with secrets. And the past is always a very important thing. And I was brought up on, on Agatha Christie, as my grandfather used to call her. Uh, my French grandfather had a whole uh, a whole shelf full of Agatha Christie novels, and I read them all in French. And it took me until I was about 16 to realize that she wasn't actually a French writer. But uh, I, I, I just happened to read all his detective books in French. Now that brings me to this. What kind of research do you find yourself doing when you get into um, some sort of secret or mystery or a body being found? Do you actually kind of get into that in detail? Well, um, I think with me, most of my research has already been done when I start to write a book because what happens is I will have areas of interest which I'll occupy for a while and I'll read about them and then I will want to write a book about them. And so, if you like, there are certain intersecting modules, if you like, within this this plot. One is is obviously a community in a private school, which I know a lot about because I was in one. But it's also um, a community in the north of England, which has a lot of... It's a mining community. Now, I was born in a mining community. I, I know the 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 kind of psychology of these communities that are built on disused mines i know a lot about old railway tunnels and old mines because that was where i i played as a child and so childhood and memories of childhood come into this a lot um and actually you don't have to go very far to find a body not where i come from um <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was I was born in a house that was that was built over a a collapsed mine. Um, there were three hundred people who died there about one hundred and fifty years ago, and there was a story about them, and and they had created their own legends, um, and and so it was it was a place where you know there were ghosts and bodies and secrets and myths, and all I had to do was to look around and pick them up when you have um like three books and you say they're loosely tied together and kind of in the series do you kind of already know what you want to do with your characters when you start writing up one of those books or even um did you kind of know what how it was going to end i guess book three when you were beginning it no i didn't um i think with these three books which are built particularly on twists and revelations i had only the cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue also you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states united healthcare short-term insurance plans underwritten by golden rule insurance company offer flexible budget-friendly coverage for you learn more at uh1.com Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. 
Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Dimmest idea of where I was going because I wanted to be surprised by developments. And so I had a number of scenes planned out. The rest wasn't, the rest was still quite fluid. I had a number of ideas about where I might go. And usually I start off with a number of of lesser ideas and one particularly audacious idea that I'm not sure I'm going to be able to carry off. And so I allow myself a number of escape routes if I'm not quite brave enough to follow the audacious idea. But actually, in the case of all three of these books, I I followed it through to the end and hopefully made it work. But uh, it's, it's always a little uncertain whether whether somebody is going to spot that twist. And so I kind of try and fool myself that I'm not really going in that direction, and that, uh, that I'm going in a different one. Is there some sort of subtext under the story? Like it, the main storyline runs, but is there something you hope a reader would take away from the book besides the story? I hope they'll take away lots of things, but I like mostly to to ask questions rather than to provide the answers for them. I was in teaching for such a long time and I told people what they ought to be learning and what conclusions they ought to be drawing from things. And now that I'm no longer in teaching, I much prefer to say, well, how did this make you feel? And why do you think this happened? And what would you have done in this person's place? I'd much rather people questioned than they came away with just one simple meaning. I don't think my books are like that. Well, there are recurrent themes in your novels. Um, I'm just wondering if that's something that you kind of, I don't know, deliberately tease out, or uh, do you think uh, all that comes out uh, unconsciously? Well, it's it's not so much unconscious, but the themes that I write about are generally the things that I'm interested in. And, and mm. if you look at the whole body of my work, you'll see that there are certain ideas that pop up all the time. And one is the woman in the face of the patriarchy, which is very much one of the themes of, of A Narrow Door. But it's also one of the themes of Chocolat. Um, yeah. You know, we accept in Chocolat the patriarchy happens to be the Catholic Church and in A Narrow Door it happens to be the, uh, the private school system. But it's not all that different. And then you've got the small community under pressure which can be a school, but it can also be a village. It can also be an island. Um, So those things keep cropping up. And then there's also the role of the outsider, 
the idea that these these communities, the, 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 the volatile chemistry of these communities can be radically affected by the arrival of one key person who brings the drama, who brings the story and catalyzes the story. And those are interesting ideas. And they're pretty much in everything that I've written because because I'm constantly retelling that story in different ways. Right. Every time you finish a book like this, um, do, you, do you feel like it's changed you somewhat? I think always, yes, because books are, are like journeys and they're journeys for the mind, but all journeys affect us and change us and hopefully allow us to grow. You know, it's, it's, it's interesting. Do you, do you have something that you hope to get out of writing a book for yourself? Huh. Well, you know, I had 20 years ago a proper job that my mother approved of <laughs> with a pension and, and all the things that go with, with the stability of, of a job. And I gave it up to do this strange, unpredictable thing that leads who knows where. And I think that if I didn't get joy from doing that, there would be no reason for me to do it at all. So it always boils down to that for me, just joy. Do you, do you, do you set yourself up in a structure? Like how do you um, do your writing? Or you are, can you set aside certain hours each day, like let's say 9 to 5, Monday to Friday, and you can just sit down and start writing? Or do you have to be in a particular mood or feeling to write? Well, I don't, I don't count hours and I don't count words because I used to have a timetable and it took me a long time to break myself of the habit of feeling that I had to sit down at a certain time and stop at another time. Nowadays, I don't do that anymore. I try to, to maximize the, the time that I've got, which isn't always as much as you'd think because <laughs> I used to write mm. in my spare time when I was a teacher, but I found that the writerly stuff that doesn't actually involve writing nowadays takes up quite a lot of time. There's the journalism and then there's the touring and then there are the foreign trips and there, there are all the other things that take me away from my desk. And so I still have to claw back time. Um, but I find that what I, what I try to do, whatever I'm doing and wherever I am, I try to write 300 words a day, which is not very much, but I try to do that every day. And obviously some days I'll do much more than that. But I think that if I can get a minimum down every day, then I will remain in the kind of headspace that I need to to shape my plot and to get to know my characters. So it's much more about remaining in the headspace rather than writing thousands of words, because actually 300 words a day get you a first draft after a year anyway, mm. as long as you do it every day, which is what I say to people when I'm teaching creative writing um people who rightly are a bit intimidated by the idea of writing a whole book and, and wonder how you start well you've you've mentioned also that you have uh synesthesia if i'm pronouncing that right when i you do can, uh, yes when you smell colors do, do you find that that helps your writing with like description and stuff or do you find that it's an obstacle well, I don't really have much of a basis for comparison, but I think it does help my writing because I do, because I experience the world primarily through color and scent. This is why I suppose there's so much color and scent in my writing, hmm. which is, I guess, a good thing because what I really like about 
writing is the possibility of full immersion for the reader, which means not just talking about what they can see, but also trying to bring the other senses into the story too and to try and make them feel as if they're actually there. And if I can feel that, then maybe I could get the reader to feel that too. Um, when I'm in my shed, which is my my favorite workspace, I am surrounded by bright colors and bright lights because those are the things that tend to give me energy. Mm-hmm. And every book that I write has a scent. Um, it's, it's my one hack for getting into the headspace when I'm not in my shed and I'm not surrounded by familiar things. But I find that scent particularly makes it easy for me to access the work. So I will allocate a scent for each book that I write and I'll wear it and have it around me when I want to be there in the space working. Hmm. And I find that it's, it's the quickest way of, of becoming emotionally receptive to what I'm doing. Did you ever look back at some of your older books, the beginning books before you sort of made it, so to speak, and want to rewrite them? <laughs> no, I don't want to rewrite them, but I do think, oh, how the hell did I write that? Or, or why did I write that in that way? But no, I think going back to things and, and reworking them is, it's, it's as pointless as looking at the photographs of, of the embarrassing stuff you wore in the eighties and trying to Photoshop it to make it look more acceptable. It's, it's part of a time. I'm fond of them because they are representative of that time. I wouldn't want to change them, but I wouldn't write them again in the same way now which is, I guess, a good thing because I hope I'm always trying to improve and, and be better. And, and I still hope that I'm on a kind of learning journey. I, I don't think that, that I'm ever going to stop. Where, where do you see yourself going um, with these books? Like, are you going to keep kind of doing the same series here or do you find you're going to go all over the place? I don't know. I've been going all over the place for so long now that I guess I'll keep doing that. But I do find that I, I return to certain characters and to certain environments, and so it's quite possible that I will write another St. Oswald's book at some point, but not yet. I think um, right now I'm working on something different, which is standalone. But I do like to to write about communities that I've already built, and so the thing that I'm writing now is is actually set at least partly in the same town, as a narrow door, although it doesn't have any of the same characters. And just from time to time, people who know my other books will go, ah, yes, I know that place. And and that will mean something. It will mean that the books are communicating to each other somehow. But uh, no, I don't stay on the same path all the time. I like to, I like to diversify. Well, I was wondering, too, look, earlier we were talking about uh, Chocolat as a film, and I know you've also written scripts. Uh, what's your experience been uh, with the movie business, and did you did you have input, or is it more like most authors, it's kind of hands off? Well, I'm, <laughs> I was asked if I wanted to write the script, and I said no, which was very sensible because mm. at the time I hadn't even given up teaching, and then I had a small child, and honestly, the idea of jetting off to LA for script meetings, I just couldn't imagine it. Mm. I hadn't even even read a movie script, let alone written one. So I let somebody else write it, which was very sensible. And I just enjoyed the ride. Nowadays, I would feel more confident to write the script and it would be a different thing. But I'm not in a great hurry to do this. And to me, it's such a different, such a different mode of storytelling. 
that I'm very happy to just do what I do and to let other people do what they do and to take it into a different medium if they want to. But it's it's not a world that I would feel super comfortable inhabiting. It's, it seems very cutthroat and um, <laughs> and difficult and and full of um, full of potential drama. I only met Harvey Weinstein once, but he was definitely potential drama. Well, yeah, and more. <laughs> yes, well, quite. You know, the first thing he said to me, um, I, I was at a party um, and I met him. I was introduced to him. And the first thing he said to me was, hello, I'm Harvey Weinstein. And when I come into a room, authors... How dare you? ...their pants. <laughs> so there was a little moment of silence. And I said, in which case, Harvey, you've got my next dry cleaning bill. And he laughed and I laughed and <laughs> he moved on. And that was our interaction. But I thought, wow, I'm so glad he's not my boss. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, at least he didn't ask you to come back to the hotel room. Well, quite. I don't think I don't think he was my type somehow. Who are your favorite authors? Who do you like to read? Oh, I read all sorts of people. Um, I, I read a lot of new books because people send me proofs of new books, and I reread a lot of authors that I've loved. I, I still reread a lot of, of Ray Bradbury, for instance, who I've loved since I was nine. And the books that I, I go back to are generally books that change. There are some books you go back to them and they haven't changed at all. And you think, okay, I can leave them now. And there are other books where the perspective of being an older person with a different life experience gives you more to find in that book. And I love those books. And so I, I go back to them. Um, and I like reading new stuff too. Um, I'm, I'm constantly discovering new authors that I enjoy. Now, if someone had, has never read one of your books before, um, what one book would you tell them would give you a give them a good um feel for your type of writing <laughs> that's a difficult one because i think it depends very much on the mood of the person and what they're like um i have books that are outright fantasy like the gospel of loki which is basically you know norse gods um books that are i would say probably magic realism like chocolat and, and books that are firmly set in the real world, like A Narrow Door. So it really depends what people like. But I've written two collections of short stories, which are full of all kinds of things. So I would say, I guess, that if people want to get an idea of where I could go, to read one of those. Do you do anything uh, to relax and recharge or even decompress uh, between chapters or novels when you're done? Oh, well, I've, I'm never done. <laughs> but I do decompress. I mean, usually I'm writing, I'm writing two books at a time so that I never get done. I, I'm never. I think I, I rather fear that kind of lacuna at the end of a book where you don't know where you're going next. And so I always make sure mm. that I'm writing several projects kind of side by side so that when one's finished, I can segue into the next thing. And there's always a work in progress. But yes, mm. I, I do all sorts of things to decompress. I, I run. Um, which gets me out in the open and, and means that I'm not slumped over a, a laptop all day. And I, I've got a big garden and I'm lucky to have that. And I spend time in there and, um, and I'm in a band and we play music mm. and write music together and, and have uh, a stage show, which hopefully now lockdown is over. We'll be able, we'll be able to go back to and, uh, and do gigs because it is quite nice to, it's, it's, it's a very solitary thing, writing books, and sometimes it's quite nice to be creative with other creative people. How, how was the COVID um, 
on your writing? Like, do you think that um, having all of the, um, let's say, unusual events in the last couple of years, does it sort of affect your writing in a way of making it maybe a little darker? Or what's your thoughts? Well, it's, it's curious. I think that everything that happens to me and everything that happens around me gets filtered. And so it's not so much something that I can perceive and I can go, yes, lockdown did this to me. But it's, it's a change in the lighting, perhaps. Um, so I think, yes, inevitably, um, there will have been some effect. Um, actually, the, the first year of lockdown, I thought, was quite, um, it was quite nice in some ways for me, because apart from the, the awful stuff that was happening outside, it was the first time I'd had the chance to, to be at home for long periods of time in 20 years. And, and it was new and strange. It was being like cast away on a, on a desert island. And so I did a lot of work. I know a lot of people who were not able to work and who were so stressed by, by events that they, they weren't able to do anything. But actually, I found it quite easy to just disappear into the page and and work and in the second year I got cancer so it was mostly about that and it was mostly about going through chemo and radio and and, and so I had one year of of but that didn't stop me writing either and now that you know now that that's gone and and hopefully gone for good then I'm looking at another new normal but what that will be who knows but yes everything will eventually get spun into story in some form i'm just never sure how that will happen yeah strange you know um and and social media the new world of of being online and uh connected to a, a lot of people including fans and readers and stuff like that how how is it you get along with that well i found that during lockdown it was it was a very interesting thing because i wasn't I was basically in my big house and my garden with nothing but my husband and I wasn't seeing anybody. And so social media was my window on the world. And that was where I went to have conversations and to share experiences and to, I, I kind of see it, I see it in the same way that I, I used to see the staff room when, when I was a teacher. It was a kind of a place where between, between lessons, you just kind of wandered in there read half a page of the paper, said hello to a few people, and then wandered back to work. And, and it, was, it was an important human interaction that didn't have to last a long time, but it's still, it's still important for me, at least, to have the, the sort of human stimulus that makes stories happen, because my stories are all about people and relationships. And, and I think if I lost touch with, with, with that, then I would find it very difficult to function. And so, yes, in, in many ways, it kept me... It kept me in touch with things. And, and then later when I was going through my treatments and I, I just announced to the world, yes, I'm, I'm going through this. I found I, I did this initially because I was just, you know, I was just thinking, well, it will make it easier if I announce to everybody and I won't have to keep saying it to people. But I found that a lot of people wanted to share their experiences and felt that it was liberating to be able to do it because in some way they felt that I'd given them permission to talk about it, which which is never a bad thing because I, I don't think women particularly uh, find it easy to talk about these experiences without without feeling that there's a supportive network and and online you you find that. Uh, so how do people get a hold of you? Like, what's your favorite social media? And do you have a website? 
I have a website at uh, joanneharris.com and I'm on Twitter. Twitter is, my daughter tells me, my natural home. And I'm Joanne Chocolat on there. And, and usually that's that's where people can find me. Um, I talk to most people if I can. Um, I don't follow everybody back, but I usually interact if they will. And people tend to ask me questions about all kinds of things. They ask me about writing and how to get an editor and, and this kind of thing. Or they'll, they'll talk to me about my books or, you know, um, anything really. It's quite nice in that it feels like, a social network rather than a professional one. And, and I do like that because I, I've never felt that that social media was necessarily a great way to, to go out and sell books, even assuming that I was able to do that. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a tough business. It's, 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 it's certainly changed it. Do you, do you like the new publishing world, you know, with the Amazon and all of the social media and stuff? Do you kind of like the way it's gone since the 90s? Well, um. I'm not sure like is the is the term. I think there are a lot of really excellent new opportunities for new writers. And I think the world of self-publishing is a very interesting one and is in some way a means of leveling the playing field and allowing for more diversity and more inclusivity within the publishing world. Because I think publishing has become calcified in some ways. Traditional publishers are becoming much more risk averse, much less likely to take a punt on, on something that they think is niche. Um, but I think there's, there's an increasing demand for diverse fiction. And so where is that going to go? It will go into self-publishing. It will go into, into different areas. So I think that that is interesting and, and that's, that's dynamic and good. Uh, I think one of the unfortunate knock-on effects, though, is that authors are being paid less and less while publishers seem to be making more and more, and, and this is you know, this is something that I think needs addressing because unless you're one of the select lucky few, it's it's rare for somebody to to make money out of out of writing books, and you know we, yeah. we should be concerned about this. Yeah, yeah, should be should be getting better, not worse, but you know, um, that's kind of the what's going on right now. So any other author you'd like to work with? Oh, wow. Well, you know, most of my heroes are either dead or not very well. Um, I think oh. I'd quite like to work with Neil Gaiman. Hmm. Um, he and I have a sort of running joke that we were separated at birth and that we had a great <laughs> number of, of, of early influences in common, although we, we approached the business in very different ways. He would be fun to work with. Um, I would quite like to work with my old friend, Christopher Fowler, um, who is my first and dearest friend in, in the publishing business. And he writes wonderful crime novels and horror novels. But uh, I, think, I think he and I would make a good team. He writes the Bryant and May books. Um, and he is the person who knows London best of all. And so it would be quite nice for us to write uh, write something together set in London and I could write the female characters and he could write the male ones because uh, that would, that would, that would be fun. What would you suggest actually for someone that's, um, that, that is writing at home and doing a job and, and all of that, but would like to get into the world of, of, of writing and being published? Um, what, what would you say the best piece of advice is? 
Well, the best piece of advice is don't give up your day job until you're absolutely ready to do it. Because, And in some cases, don't give it up at all, because sometimes it, it's, it's just not going to be possible to make a living writing full time. And you don't have to. You don't have to write full time to be to be a writer. I wasn't a full time writer and I, I published three books. Um, but I think the important thing is to to keep hold of why you're doing it, because I think I meet quite a lot of people who who want to write because they want to be published and they want the things that they think being published is going to give them. But those things are not necessarily accurate things. I think if you don't love writing and if you don't want to do a lot of it, then perhaps writing isn't for you because honestly, 99% of being a writer is still writing. And so if you don't like writing, then there's probably something out there that will suit you better. Yeah. And you're not, you're not saying that it's not work or it's not hard work. It's, it's just about loving doing it. I think so, yes, because there are so many potential knockbacks and rejections and disappointments and frustrations involved in being published that if you don't love what you do, there will be nothing to sustain you. Um, and, yeah. and so loving what you do is, is, I think, an essential. And also loving, loving books, loving reading. I meet a lot of would-be writers who, who have no time to read and, and who think that that the reading bit is optional, but it, it's not. You have to consume art to be able to produce art. Well said. Well, on that note, um, we're out of time. So uh, it's been a real pleasure um, getting to know you a little bit and talking about your writing. And uh, now the book everyone should run out and buy right now. It's called A Narrow Door. And the author is our guest, Joanne Harris. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much, Alan. I've really enjoyed our chat. Thanks, Joanne. Tired of wasting time trying to decide what to watch on your streaming service? Go to our website and look for the Martino Movie Reviews. To find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. The end! By George, he's got it! It is the end! I'll say it! You're lying to me. I'll be back. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show is over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Yeah. Good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back. 